Hello, and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. Again, we're so glad that everybody's here for Easter and this opportunity to share an Easter message. And to kind of start it off, as I was thinking about Easter and, and the resurrection story and how it kind of intersects and, and, and interfaces with all of our lives, it, there's something going on in the Easter narrative um, that, that is, I, I think, really important and that we kind of miss sometimes. And especially if we're at the stage of life where, you know, maybe we kind of, we, we know about the Easter story, but maybe it's something that it might be a little bit hard um, for some of, some of us to believe. And, and I think the comparison that I would give this morning is to social media. Anybody in the room find us on social media or you're on social media? Can I hear a woo-woo? Yeah, just about, <laughs> if you got a pulse in 2019, you got some kind of social media account, right? Like, you got a YouTube account, a Twitter account, a Facebook account, an Instagram account, you got all those. Anybody ready to jump on that? The, did you guys hear about the new big social media platform that's coming out? Did you guys know about that? The three of the big ones are, are, are joining together to create, like, the social media platform to end. It's, it's YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. They're getting together, and, and it's going to be launching soon. Um, if you haven't heard of it, it's called UTwitface. And um, make sure you go to <laughs> utwitface.com and get your handle, your hashtag before. No, no don't go there. I'm kind of scared to send people anywhere on the internet nowadays. Don't go there. I don't know what's, what's there. I'm just joking. Um, but yeah, social media, we're, we're all on social media. I, I've, I'm being told more and more often by my kids that I'm old, and apparently Facebook is for old people. Did you guys know this? I didn't know Facebook was for old people. I like Facebook. Like, Facebook's good. Like, I get to talk with people on Facebook. Instagram, I just see what you're eating, and I don't ever get to talk about it. But Facebook's kind of cool, except like a year, you know, like every year, Facebook reminds you that it's a stalker, and it's like, hey, here's what you did last year. You know, like, here's where you were last year. Here's what you said last year. I was like, man, this is worse than a fight with my wife. Like, yeah. It remembers everything, and it's all right there. And, and, but what's interesting to me about social media is I, I think for future people, future generations, for future historians, I think social media is going to do something that I think is going to be a little bit kind of unprecedented, except, and we're going to dive into this with talking about Christianity and the birth of Christianity, except when it comes to Christianity. And here's what I think is going to be kind of unprecedented about future historians as they get to look back on our times. Not only will they know like the events and what took place and like kind of the bare bones you know, historical facts about what was going on in our world right now. But through social media and looking at our social media accounts, they're going to be able to know how we felt about it and how it impacts us. And I think for future generations, it's, it's going to be a lot harder for them to come up with, you know, kind of revisionist history. And they're going to see the emotions and the opinions of, of regular people and irregular people like us. And, and um, all of it will kind of be recorded you know, down, down through the years. And, and here's why I think the whole social media comparison is so important. Because even as we gather on this Sunday morning to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, honestly, some of us have doubts. And this is maybe why you haven't been to church in a while or you don't, you know, maybe you call yourself a Christian, but you're not that engaged. Like, I get it. I, I'm not judging you for that this morning. But some of us have doubts because we haven't really looked at the Easter story maybe the right way. Or maybe the way that we know the Easter story is just kind of like the childhood version of the Easter story, right? It was, it was something that we heard in Sunday school or something that we had read to us at night, but we never really engaged with it as adults. And, you know, we might think, well, it's a great story, right? I mean, it's like the ultimate comeback story, right? The hero gets killed, but he comes back and, and he wins over everything. And maybe if we ever get to a dark time in our lives, you know, I'll kind of re-engage with the story, draw some inspiration out of the story. But I, I just, I, I have questions about it. And, and then, you know, there's just a lot of different reasons. And again, I, I'm not judging anybody. If I was in your shoes with your circumstances and, and your influences, I'd be where you are. And if vice versa, you'd be where I am today. But for a lot of different reasons, a lot of us kind of disengage from allowing Easter 
in the meaning of the Eastern story to, to significantly impact our lives. And, and, you know, maybe you never really followed Jesus for yourself. Maybe it was a parent, you know, your parents did or your, your grandparents did. Maybe you did follow Jesus, but something happened that kind of pushed you away. Maybe you had a life event or maybe you went through a crisis or a trial and it just didn't seem like it worked. It just didn't seem like it was doing anything or, you know, it seemed less important as we get older. Sometimes that happens to us. And, and maybe, again, some of it is just, it's hard to believe. Like for rational people, and then there's science, you know, out there nowadays, like with this narrative that it's science versus faith. Like you can't, you know, be a person of science and have faith, and, and that's just not the case. And uh, if, if I can give an example, there's some things in the Bible, honestly, they're hard to believe, right? I mean, we're, we're talking about a guy getting up from the dead, like, that doesn't happen every single day, right? Or there would be no mortuaries in business. It just, you know, there, there are guys in there, you know, there's some people in the Bible that walked on water. That's kind of hard to believe, right? Some of us can't even swim, and we're adults. Like, you know, there, there, there's, a, there's a talking snake in the Bible. There's a talking donkey, like way before Shrek was even an idea, that was, a, that was a Bible idea, right? And, and, and all of these things happen in the Bible. And honestly, we as adults sometimes, we have a hard time believing. But if we kind of stumble or struggle with any of those things that are in the Bible, I actually think we're stumbling or struggling with the wrong things. I don't even think those things are the hardest part of the Bible to believe. I actually think the hardest thing to believe in all the Bible are the first four words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. Like, do you believe that there is a God or a higher power or a higher being? Could there be something out there? And if there is a God that made water, couldn't he make somebody walk on water? Like, if, if there is a God who made a donkey, couldn't he make a donkey talk? Like, if he brought humans to life, would it really be so hard for a God to bring someone to life again? So if we struggle with some of these things, like maybe, just maybe we're struggling with the wrong thing. And if we have doubts and if we have questions about the resurrection, like is there a way to look at the resurrection, the Easter story, and, and you know, that, that might make it a little bit easier to believe or at least a little bit easier to start hoping that it could, in fact, be true. Because if we can begin believing that the resurrection is true, if we can let that hope kind of like seep into our hearts and our lives, I'm telling you, it changes Everything, all of Christianity and all of Christian faith hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the, my hope this morning is not to like convince you that, that the resurrection is true. We need way longer than one message for that. But I just want to share with you maybe a different perspective on, on the resurrection story and its meaning and, and, and some of the events that happened there. And, and hopefully just give you some hope that maybe this could be true and you could start believing again. Now, what I'm not here to do is defend church history. There are whole seasons and episodes and chapters of church history that are just embarrassing for Christians. And, and I'm not here to defend how maybe some Christians have treated you in the past or some things that you've heard Christians say about different people groups or maybe about people that you love. You know, and I wouldn't even begin defending the Bible kind of as some people think of the Bible. Well, it's like a novel or, well, it's like a collection of good moral sayings or it's this holy book that may, I, we're not sure where it came from, maybe descended from the cloud. That's not what I'm here to defend this morning, but the reason this morning that I'm here to talk about the resurrection in a different way is that I think that the events surrounding the, re the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the way that it was delivered to us actually feels a lot like social media. It does. It feels like first century social media, and that's what we're going to talk about. See, I think, I, and I know I'm kind of a weird Christian for this, I, I think that the criticism and the questions about the Bible have actually been healthy. Because it's forced, like really smart, you know, smarter Christians than me, smarter Christians than us in this room, historians and even people who are secular historians and secular archaeologists, to kind of dig through all of the evidence of history and see what history actually has to say outside of the Bible, what history has to say about Christianity and the beginning of Christianity. Now, the good news is they started looking for and looking through the evidence around Christianity. The good news is that there's a lot of it. For the people here with faith this morning, there's great news. There's a ton of evidence about Jesus and his movement and his resurrection. And anybody here that wants to believe, again, there is a lot of evidence. There's good news for us. But it turns out that what we think of as the Bible wasn't even the starting point for the first people who believed that Jesus rose from the dead. Did you know that there were actually hundreds of thousands? That's a lot of people. Hundreds of thousands 
of Christians and believers who were Christians and believers a long time before the Bible was ever even being put to, had ever even been put together. There were people that began believing that Jesus rose from the dead on the morning that Jesus rose from the dead. And when that happened, the people in Jerusalem and the people in the surrounding area, they did exactly what you or I would do now that we have social media on their phone, on our phones. They went and they started talking about it with each other. They started tweeting each other. They started, you know, posting Instagram selfies. They didn't do that. They couldn't do that. But, you know, they, they started talking about it in a way that we might consider to be first century social media. And, and they posted about it and, and talked about it with each other. And we actually believe, Zach, if you can go to the first sign, we actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead, not because of an official Christian position or an official like, Christian spokesman came out and put out a press release. We believe Jesus rose from the dead because of the eyewitness accounts of regular people. People like you and me. Matthew said that he saw a risen Jesus. Mark and Luke, and John, and Peter all said that they met with the risen Jesus. And then not just men, but the ladies. There was Mary, and then there was the other Mary, and then the other Mary, and the other Mary all said they met. They weren't very creative in naming their kids back in the first century. Literally, there's like four or five Marys in there. We're going to talk about one of the Marys today. All of these men, all of these women said that they believed in a risen Savior, not because of a book, but because they met with a risen Savior. And all of them, either by seeing for themselves or by interviewing, in Luke's case and some of the other cases, interviewing those who had seen the hundreds, almost a thousand people who saw Jesus after he had risen from the dead, they wrote about it. Now, one of the most compelling witnesses for Jesus being raised from the dead was James, the half-brother of Jesus. How many in the room have a brother or sister? Like, what would it take for you? Like, if your brother or your sister came to you and said, I am the son, I am the daughter of God. Like, what would it take for you to believe that, right? You wouldn't believe that. I don't care what, I have a brother. There's no way. Like, that's, that's not it. Son of, no, I'll just leave the personal jokes. I'm going to leave it alone. We would not believe it. And that's what's so compelling about James. He was the half-brother of Jesus. And during Jesus' public career, James was not a believer, in fact, there's one episode where James and the mother of Jesus, her name was Mary. Uh, James and the mother of Jesus actually go to get Jesus because they're like, he, he's been out in the sun too long. We need to bring him home. We're not really sure what he's talking about, but we think the boy's gone crazy. And then James was not a believer. And then they crucified his brother. And no doubt James was sad, but James was still not a believer until after, after that Sunday morning, James met with his risen brother, and James became a believer that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. And he became a leader of the early church, and James ended up giving his life because he said, I believe that my brother was the Son of God, and there's nothing you can do to make me deny it. And so they had James executed. He was a martyr. Wow, that's pretty compelling evidence, is it? That's pretty compelling evidence. Paul steps onto the pages of history as a Christian hater. If there's some Christians you don't like, you would have loved Paul. Paul was a Christian hater. And he steps onto the, the, the pages of history. He thought Jesus was crazy. He thought all his followers were crazy. And he started having them arrested and dispossessed of their homes. And then he had Stephen stoned to death. And he stood by and watched it all. And then Paul, one day, he flips the whole story. And he says, hey, I was on my way to Damascus. And I met the risen Jesus. And Paul became one of the greatest proponents of the early church started more churches in that first century than anybody else because he said, I've seen, I've seen someone. I've, I've experienced something, and it's undeniable, and I can no longer deny that Jesus is alive. It's powerful. It's compelling. There's another historical fact, and then I'll move on from this, I, I promise. Roman history and Nero. Nero was, you know, we don't know a lot about Roman history, right? Everybody kind of knows about Julius Caesar, right? We all know about Caesar because he invented that salad. It goes great with steaks. And, and then after Caesar, the emperors of Rome kind of came in, and Nero was a couple down the line. And if you know a little bit, anybody who knows a little bit about Nero and Roman history knows that he persecuted Christians. And then you know maybe that he burned down almost all of Rome, and then he blamed Christians for burning down most of Rome. 
Now this is amazing because it happened only 30 years after the resurrection. And it leaves us asking a question. How was Nero able to blame thousands of Christians in, in Rome, not in Jerusalem, not in Israel, in Rome from bur for burning it down only 30 years after the resurrection? Here's why this is so important, this 30-year part. Historians and people who study mythology, and you can go back, sorry. Uh, people who study mythology and folklore and all of these kinds of things, um, when, when they look at how things become legends, they have kind of come to the consensus, and this is what's taught in universities and, and, and programs all over the world, that it takes a, an event about 80 to 100 years before it becomes myth or fable or legend. And anybody guess why it takes 80 to 100 years? Because they need all the people who went through the event to die. There can't be any actual eyewitnesses to the event if they're going to make the event bigger or more supernatural than it was. And so you need at least 80 to 100 years. But 30 years after the resurrection, there are Christians in Rome, mostly Roman citizens, because something had happened within the boundaries of the Roman Empire that was so compelling that Romans began to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. And the reason that Nero was able to blame thousands of Christians in Rome only 30 years after is because of this next slide. Because thousands of Christian believers already lived in Rome 30 years after the resurrection. Not 80 years, not 90 years, or 100 years, or 200 years. 30 years after the resurrection. And here's the really good news for anybody who has problems or doubts about the Bible. All of this happened a long time before there was ever a Bible. You've got to know this stuff about the resurrection. If you have doubts, if, you, if you're wondering if it could really be true, like it's not even a Bible thing. We can trace this back historically. We don't need to go to Jerusalem or Israel. We can go to Rome and look at the historical records and the archaeological findings and see that 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, thousands of Roman citizens have begun to believe that Jesus had in fact risen from the dead because there was too much evidence. First century social media. It was compelling. It was amazing. And so we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead because Mark and James and John and Peter and Paul and even Nero and of course Mary and Mary and Mary and Mary all tell us that they met the risen Savior. And as they wrote down their accounts and passed them around, this is, again, you got to know this. It's not like one account of everything exists, and that's the special copy that nobody has access to. But there were hundreds and then thousands of copies of these eyewitness accounts that were passed all over the world. And thousands of years later, archaeologists have found copies of these letters in Egypt and Israel, of course, the Middle East, but all the way into like Ireland and Scotland and those places have found copies. And when they compare these copies from all over the world, they see that the eyewitnesses' accounts all gel together and all of it fits. And it's first century social media. And that's why we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And so in 2019, all over the planet, Literally, for billions of people, we say today that Jesus must still be alive because we have experienced love like we've never experienced before. We have experienced the power of forgiveness. There are people in this room, like our lives were headed in a downward spiral. Something arrested our spiral and set us on a brand new path, and it wasn't us because we had tried to do it ourselves before. We have found something about the risen Jesus, and it all started with first century social media. It's pretty cool, isn't it? First century Facebook. But that's some facts, and you didn't come here today to celebrate facts. We came, and Christians all over the world come together to celebrate the meaning of the resurrection and Easter, that if life and death and then the new life of Jesus was in some way a gift from God to us, then our life has been given a new context. And there is new meaning, and there's new purpose for everything that we experience. And it has impact on how we spend our time and who we make sure that we make time for. It has impact, the resurrection does, on, on how we use our energy and our talents and how we mourn and how we experience sorrow and suffering and how we face difficulty and, of course, how we love. And once you wrestle this to the ground, once you get it in your heart that you believe or you're beginning to believe that Jesus rose from the dead again, I'm telling you, there is a very real sense in which life becomes brand new, brand new. 
And that would be the testimony of so many believers in this room. Can I have one more amen before we move on? And so today in the last half of this message, I want to share the story of of one of Jesus' early followers that I think is so moving, is so compelling. It's like a social media post, and I want to share that, and then we're going to have the band come back up, and we're going to sing a song together, and I'll, I'll pray over you this morning, and then I'm going to let you go and negotiate a parent tax on your kid's chocolate, all right? So we'll do that. But let me start by asking this question, like, who was Jesus? Why did Jesus show up? And if I can give, just hang with me for a couple of minutes. I mean, I think that most of us in the room, if you come from any kind of Christian background, you've heard about Adam and Eve in the garden and the forbidden fruit, right? And we know that, you know, in the first chapter of the Bible, the first chapter of Genesis, like everything's good. Light is good and and trees are good and the planet's good. It's good, 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 good. And then like by page three in the Bible, something happens that's never happened to people before. They hear a voice telling them something contrary to everything that was created good. And the voice tells them that God is in fact not good. And God is in fact holding out on you from achieving and from finding the real good and the best kind of good. And people are suddenly faced with a choice. Like, do I believe all of the evidence around me in my life that God is good, or do I believe this voice that kind of came out of nowhere? And we know, of course, that the people believe the lie. They think that God's holding out and that we're, you know, we're going to go off and kind of live our own version of humanness. We were created to kind of reflect God and his goodness, but we're just going to kind of ditch that, put that to the side. We're going to go live out our own version of how to be human. And, and, and since that beginning, for every generation since those first people, it has been easier and easier to believe the lie that God is not good because we are surrounded by people and Sometimes we are the people who tend to, leave, uh, to, to continue to live out kind of our, our own version of how it, what it looks like to be human. And we live for ourselves and, and, and you know, we, we get for ourselves and we do for ourselves and we think only of ourselves and we end up hurting the people around us. Or maybe we've been hurt by people around us. And when bad things happen to us, even though we've been good people, we tend to blame all of our pain on the divine bystander. But from the very beginning, that was not God's plan for people. God made everything good. And look, why God allowed this to happen, it takes way more time than what we got today. But let me just say this. If people were going to truly be able to love and to have someone love them, it had to happen voluntarily. Love has to have a choice. You can't force someone to love you. We know that. It's called kidnapping. You'll go to jail. You can't force someone to love you. And so, you know, we had to have a choice. But here's the part that just we kind of assume as we read the Bible story. This is something that we just kind of take for granted. When people chose to believe a lie about God and do their own thing, God didn't wipe them out and get better people. God came to them where they were, and he started this rescue process. And then he gave them a promise right from the very beginning that, hey, I'm going to send a rescuer for you and for all the later generations of humans to fix you and to restore you and to save you from all of the brokenness that is in your life. And I promise that at just the right time in human history, now just not the right time to what we think maybe, but at just the right time, I'm going to send a rescuer into the world. I'm going to send a king who will rule over everything and defeat the forces of evil that that take us slave and and take us captive. And and so God promised the world a rescuer. And the Jewish people, they had this special link, and I don't got time to go into it this morning, but they had a special link to God. And they called this rescuer, the promised rescuer from God, they called that rescuer the Messiah. And they had a special link to God, but they had a broken understanding of of what the Messiah was all about. They began to live their own version of humanness. They thought the Messiah was just for them and would be against everybody else. But that wasn't the way God originally planned it. And so they would wait for the Messiah year after year after year. They would wait for the Messiah. And other nations would come and they would beat up the nation of Israel. Sometimes they'd carry them off into slavery. And then, you know, God would help them out when they would cry out to God. And they'd go back and the other nations would laugh at them and say, where's your your Messiah? Where's your rescuer? Where is your king? And year after year became century after century with no Messiah, no king to come along and make Israel great again. There was just nothing that came into their history. And there were guys who tried to be the Messiah, generally some kind of political or military leader, and it just never seemed to work. And that happened century after century until you get to the first century. 
And when we get to the first century, Rome is the big dog in the world. And Rome rules the world, and Rome rules Israel. And there is no Messiah. And the city of Rome is called the eternal city. It's the eternal city of the eternal empire. But if that's the eternal city of an eternal empire, then what about God's Messiah? And is God falling through on his promise to send a rescuer, and not just to Jewish people, but a rescuer to the hurting world that God claimed to love? And then one day in the first century, in Israel, in the Judean countryside near the city of Jerusalem, the weirdest man ever walks out of the wilderness and onto the Jewish stage. And his name was John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And he started dunking people in the river to, to, to help them kind of get back on track with God. He told them, this is what you need to do to prepare yourself because God's rescuer is finally on the way. But John was strange. John looked funny. John talked funny, and he ate funny things, and he smelled funny. And thousands of Jewish people went to hear John in the desert, and he would tell them how horrible they are. You're horrible people. You need to repent. And they loved it because that's the way we feel about church sometimes, right? Like you go to church, like, man, they made me feel horrible. That was a good service. You know, <laughs> we love that guilt, don't we? Just... John told him, you're horrible. And they, they went and they said, well, baptize us and make us not horrible. You know, and it drove the religious leaders crazy because John's church was a lot bigger than their church and they couldn't get anybody to go back to their church. And so they went out to talk to John. They said, well, hey, are you the Messiah? Are you the rescuer guy that we've been waiting for? And John's like, well, good news because I know you don't like the way I dress. I'm not the Messiah, but he's coming. He's coming and I'm just preparing the way. And so John was baptizing people over and over, person after person, all ready for the Messiah to come. And one day, John's waist deep in the water, baptizing somebody, and he stops everything. Everybody, stop. Everybody, look and listen. And he points down the road to somebody walking towards the river, and he tells them, Look, when the old Bible language is behold, but not behold the military leader, not behold a king, but behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins, notice, of the whole world. Of the whole world. The rescuer was here. Jesus steps onto the pages of history, and the world has never been the same. And Jesus begins to teach people and to preach and, and to call people to follow him, and he gains so much influence, so many followers on his social media, and Yet he was using his influence in ways that seemed so odd because who would use, who would gain all this influence and, and then use it to serve people and not like deserving or good people. Like Jesus used all of his power and influence and resources to serve like the societal outcasts, to serve people who were not religious and not holy. He would serve prostitutes and cheats and, and liars and the diseased and the disabled that weren't like, they, they thought there was a curse on those people so they wouldn't really consider them or allow them into their social circles. And Jesus just went for all of them and loved all of them and, and touched people that nobody else would touch and spent time with people nobody else would spend time with. And the people were confused, especially the Jewish people, because we thought Messiah was for us and against everybody else. But it turns out that Jesus doesn't look like a, a Messiah at all. He doesn't look like a rescuing, conquering king at all. But here Jesus was with crowds now, bigger than John's crowds. And the Romans start getting nervous because this looks like it might turn into another rebellion. And the Jewish re religious leaders, they get nervous, and they're probably a little bit jealous too. And they keep having these run-ins with Jesus and all these debates and conversations and Jesus keeps showing them up and then, you know, embarrassing them with their own questions and their own ideas about religion and our relationship with God. And he just turns it around on them and tells them, you don't know what you're talking about. You got religion wrong. You got God wrong. You got it all wrong. And then he told them, you're in danger of the judgment of hell. Man, that was strong. They didn't like that. They didn't want Jesus on the scene anymore. He was threatening to their position and their power. And so one day, the final straw was when Jesus raised a man from the dead named Lazarus. And it happened in a town called Bethany, which was believed to be a well-known hospice in the area. And, and there, the Lazarus was believed to be a caretaker there at that hospice with his two sisters. And when he died, everybody was sad and they didn't know what had happened and why Jesus would allow it. But Jesus went and he raised Lazarus from the dead. And when he raised Lazarus from the dead, his following just grew even larger. And the religious leaders couldn't stand it. And they got together and they make this really interesting statement. They say, if we don't do something about Jesus, everybody's going to believe 
in Jesus. And the Romans are going to come and look at this. They're going to take away our temple, our temple, like where we derive our position and our power, our temple and our nation. And this deadly mix of politics and religion drove them to plot the arrest and the execution of Jesus. But they needed some help because Rome was still in charge and they couldn't put somebody to death. And so they paid one of his followers named Judas to betray Jesus and tell them where they could arrest him. And then they t- paid other witnesses to, to lie about Jesus. And, and they told the Romans that, hey, Jesus is plotting a rebellion against Rome because that was a capital offense. He could be executed for that. He'd be crucified for that. And Rome believed the lies and allowed the crucifixion to happen. And Rome did what Rome was good at doing, and they crucified Jesus like they had crucified so many failed revolutionaries before him. And then two secret followers of Jesus. They were ashamed to be associated with Jesus, pressured and afraid to be associated with Jesus before this. But they went to Pilate, and some think that they had to bribe that Roman governor, and they got permission to bury the body of Jesus. And they took the body of Jesus down from the cross themselves. And these two wealthy men, it turns out, took his body to a tomb that had never been used before. And they had brought spices, burial spices, that they used to wrap the bodies with to help with the smell of death. And they took the body to one of the men's own tomb nearby, and they buried the body of Jesus there, wrapping his body in the the linen strips and the spices. And they buried Jesus in that tomb. And then there's something else. For those that doubt the resurrection or have questions about it, something else you got to know. This is a really interesting fact. The opponents of Jesus... The ones that had him crucified, they went back to Pilate and they were worried about some kind of trickery being played with the body. And so they got Pilate to give them a contingent of the Roman guard. And they went back to the tomb themselves, the opponents, the enemies of Jesus. And they made sure that the body was in there. And then they were the ones that saw the stone rolled across the entrance and sealed with the Roman seal. And then they saw and they left the guards there around the entrance. There would be no trickery. There would be no stealing the body and fake magic happening. And Jesus had died. And Jesus was in a tomb. And here's something else you have to know about those days when Jesus was in the tomb. When Jesus died, the Jesus movement died with him. There were no Christians on the evening of Good Friday. There were no Christians on Saturday. There were no Christians Sunday morning before anybody saw the resurrected Jesus. Not because they didn't like his teachings. His teaching was amazing. Not because he hadn't done any miracles. They had seen some things they could hardly believe even though they saw them with their own eyes. The reason that they all stopped believing that Jesus was who he said he was was because their faith in Jesus was always centered around who Jesus said he was. It wasn't about what he did. It wasn't about what he said. And when Jesus died, it undermined everything that he had claimed about himself. You can't say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and then die. It doesn't make any sense. He claimed to be God's son. Well, God surely wouldn't let this happen. He claimed he could forgive sins, and he was God's Messiah. And Israel knew the Messiah means you win, but now it looks like you lost. We saw you die, and now you're laying in a tomb, and everyone's faith in Jesus died when Jesus died on the cross. No Christianity. Game over. Everybody went home. Think about that. There were no Christians standing outside the tomb on Easter morning with like a big welcome back banner. There was no cake. Nobody was counting down from 10, you know, 10, 9, 8, here he comes. Everybody stopped believing. They all went back home. It was over. And they all, in all of their their records and their accounts, they all admit, we did not believe. We had given up because when people die, they usually stay. Yeah, they usually stay dead. But then there was one lady. Her name was? And she tells her account of what happened on Easter morning. And she told it to John who wrote it down, and turns out she also had lost faith and thought that it was over. But John, recording the words of Mary, tells us what happens next in John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. Now Mary had an amazing story. Mary had been physically healed by Jesus. But more than physical healing, Mary's life had been changed in miraculous and spiritual ways. Mary had been given value when she was living the kind of life that others would call valueless. Jesus had done something for her so profound 
And she had high hopes in Jesus. She knew firsthand what Jesus was offering people. She knew his claims, and she believed Jesus was the Messiah. But now, now, now he's dead, and my hopes are kind of crushed, and I'm not sure what to think about all this. And, 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 you know, but even with a broken and a doubting heart, Mary woke up early that morning, long before sunrise, and she took more spices that they used to use in burial to, and headed for the tomb where the body lay. Now, why did she take even more spices for burial? Every lady in the room knows this answer because two men had done the job the first time and she needed to do it. Right, yeah, okay, we'll just keep going on. That's not really the reason. Here's the other reason why, and this is the most important reason. you got to, you got to, you got to see this. Mary went to the tomb with more spices for burial because Mary expected to find a body. Because when people die, they usually stay. So Mary went to the tomb because Jesus was dead. Christianity and the Jesus movement was over. She went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And her first thought was not, he's alive. Her first thought was not, he's risen. Her first thought was, great, somebody's broken into the tomb and stolen the body of Jesus. She can't believe it. She runs back to the city. She goes and she finds John and Peter. They're hiding from the authorities because, you know, if the authorities crucified Jesus, they might come for us next. And so we're, we're laying low. We're kind of hoping everybody forgets about the Jesus movement. She busts through the door. And, and again, her first words to them are not, he's alive. Her first words are not, he is risen. She says to them in verse 2, they have taken the Lord out of the, out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. They they, they, like when you ask your kids who did it, and they said, they did, he did, she did, somebody else, they must have moved him. And we don't know exactly what she's thinking, but she's probably thinking that his enemies stole his body. They want to make sure nothing happens. They've taken it away. They lied. They paid off witnesses. And they, the last thing they want is for the Jesus movement to gain momentum. And so to Mary, things are going from bad to worse. I mean, this is her Jesus This is her Savior. This is one who found her in a life that was worthless and valueless and had degraded her. And he healed her physically, but much more more than that, Jesus had healed her emotionally and in her heart. Jesus had begun putting her back together spiritually, but now her Savior, her Jesus, she had seen him arrested. She had watched him go through a sham of a trial and be lied on by witnesses. And then she saw her Savior crucified and he had died And now someone has stolen the body. She's heartbroken and distraught. And Peter and John run back with her through the city streets and out the city gate and out to the tomb where the tomb is. And they peek into the tomb and they see an empty tomb just like Mary had told them there was. And their first words were not, he's alive. Their first words were not, he has risen. But they walked away wondering, what are we going to do and what has happened? to the body of Jesus. But nobody believed that Jesus had gotten up, just like you and me would not believe that Jesus had gotten up because when people die, they usually stay dead. But meanwhile, Mary had decided to stay there, and it's, it's the last place that she knew his presence to be. And if you've ever lost someone or had a loved one die, you kind of get what she's doing, right? It's the last place where she knows his body was. She's just trying to feel close to him again. And as she later would tell John the story, and John would write it down, here's what Mary said happened next in verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. The tomb of the greatest man that had ever lived. The greatest man to ever walk the earth. Touch people no one else would touch. For all of his goodness and all of the wonderful things that he had done, he was crucified. And now they won't even leave his body alone. And she's distraught and she's crying outside of the tomb. In verse 11 and 12, it says, as she wept, She bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels, probably startled her, saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And these angels looked at her and they said, woman, why are you crying? And Mary answered them, they have taken, they have taken my Lord away. Not he got up and went somewhere. They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. 
And as she is talking with the angel, stooped down still, bent over, looking through the opening of the tomb, she hears something behind her, and Mary, she kind of turns, and she tells us in verse 14, at this she turned around, and she saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. Now, this is something that seems to happen in all of the resurrection accounts. It's Jesus, but it doesn't quite look like Jesus. Like, was he wearing something different? Was the sun not all the way up? For whatever reason, Mary doesn't recognize him. And I think Jesus is like trying to keep a big old grin off his face. Anybody see those pictures? I love those, or not pictures, those videos when soldiers come home from deployment. And they like got their kids blindfolded at the, you know, or the spouse is there and the soldier comes up behind him. That soldier's got the biggest old grin on his face because he knows or her face, they know what's about to happen when, when they're revealed to their spouse or to their children. I think it's one of those kind of moments with Jesus. He knows what she's about to realize. And Jesus is probably a little bit giddy on the inside. He's about to let people know, I got up. Now, I think Jesus missed a moment here, just going to say. I would have done it inside the tomb, probably when Peter and John came. Let them come inside the tomb and then like raise up, raw, you know, like <laughs> scare them to death, right? And then you're Jesus, so you just raise them back up. You know, it's just <laughs> Jesus missed a moment. I'm telling you, Jesus missed a moment. But Mary's about to understand that Jesus is alive. And if Jesus is alive, this changes everything about everything. If Jesus is alive, it changes the way that we look at death. If Bless you. If Jesus is alive, it changes the way we view the cross and suffering. If Jesus raised from the dead, it changes how we look at Jesus himself. If Jesus is alive in 2019, then hope is reborn for all of us. If Jesus is alive today, there is nothing that is impossible. I don't care what seems dead in your life. I don't, see I don't care what seems like it's too far gone, like there's no redemption. If the one who got up from the dead is still alive today, then he specializes in making dead things come to life. Jesus is alive. It changes everything about everything. It does. Verse 15, he asks her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? And then Mary, and I think Mary did this. Mary, I think, makes John record this detail. She makes sure he writes it down. That I think it's, it's a hilarious moment, but we read the Bible so seriously, we just kind of skip right over. In verse 15, it says, thinking he was the gardener, like Mary's telling this story for the rest of her life, right? Like, you know, people come up to her, okay, who are you? Which, which Mary are you? You're like, which, you know, oh, tomb Mary. Yeah, tomb Mary. Like, would you tell us again, how did it happen? Tell us about that morning. She'd have people sit down and she'd tell the story. And when she got to this part, I think Mary for the rest of her life said, I thought he was the gardener, thinking that he was the gardener. And notice, she still thinks someone's stolen the body. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, like, I don't know why, but if you have carried him away, will you just tell me where you've put him? And I'll, I'll go back, and I'll get him. You don't have to put yourself out. I'll go get his body. Sir, if you've taken him, can you just tell me? where? He, and by now, she's probably almost turning back. Like, you know, there was two angels in there. She's probably looking back inside the tomb, and he's just a caretaker. Surely the gardener didn't do anything with the body. And then in that moment, something so powerful happens. And Jesus says to her, Mary, Mary, Mary. And in that moment, a woman whose Savior she had seen die, the one that had healed her physically, but so much more than that, healed her heart and her spirit and had made whole things that were broken and she thought maybe would never be put back together again. She hears her name coming from the lips of the one who has changed her life, Mary. And when Jesus says her name, everything changes for Mary. Oh, come on, if you're in this room and he's done anything for you, could you just take a moment? 
Could you lift up your hands and close your eyes and just give him thanks right now for the moment that Jesus called you by name? Come on, all over this room. Can you lift up your voice right now? Jesus. He says her name. Mary is startled and she turns back around and she realizes that it's him. She turns toward him and she cries out in Aramaic, their native tongue, Rabboni, which means teacher, teacher. This is impossible, but you're alive. I thought it was too far gone, but you're alive and you're standing in front of me. And she has the most improbable conversation with Jesus. And he gives her another message to take back to the other disciples to tell them that he's alive and that he's going to ascend to her father and to his father and to her God and to his God. And they had heard the farewell speech from Jesus. They knew what he was saying by this, that there, if, if Jesus was going away, then that meant that Jesus was sending back the presence of the Holy Spirit. And in the form of the Holy Spirit, they would know that they would never have to be apart from their Savior again. They would be with him forever because he was alive. And Mary Magdalene ran back with the message, went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. I saw him. I saw him. It's first century social media. If the musicians could come, first century social media. She saw him. She experienced this thing. It didn't come to her third hand. She saw him. And here's another thing you have to know. In the first century in the Middle East, women had zero credibility. They were given zero credibility in that culture. They couldn't even testify in courtroom trials. Their word was considered unreliable or at least less reliable than a man. And yet in all of the gospel accounts of the resurrection, it is always women who are the ones that are the first to see the risen Jesus and say that he has risen again. And do you know why in all of those gospel accounts it's always women who say they were the first to see Jesus after he was raised from the dead? Because that's what really happened if someone was making up a fable or a legend or a folklore or myth or something else, they would have used a man. They would have used somebody else. But this is social media. This happened. It's regular people like you and me. And Mary ran back and told all of the unbelieving men and all of the unbelieving women, all of the brokenhearted followers, everyone that's given up and gone back to old jobs and old ways of living because Christianity was dead and Jesus had died. And the very first moment that someone in history began to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead was when Jesus called Mary by name. Mary. Mary. And it changed everything. And everything that Jesus had said was true. And death, in fact, was not final. And the cross, in fact, was not the end. And the Jesus movement, the Jesus church would be built Hello? It came true. And everything that Jesus said was to be true. And his movement, or the news rather, of his resurrection spread to thousands of people in Jerusalem. Over 500 people at one time saw the risen Jesus. Eyewitness after eyewitness saw the risen Jesus. And they began to share their accounts. And they began to tell their stories to other people around them. And, and there, was, there was just too much evidence to deny and none of the critics were able to poke any holes in the stories. They could not deny what had happened on Easter morning. And that church began to spread. And there was persecution that later would happen in Jerusalem. And those Christians would go out and spread up around the northern Mediterranean rim. And, and the news of Jesus would spread throughout that Roman world. And eyewitnesses shared it all over the Roman world. Rome was all the world then. And they made their way all the way to Rome. And 10 and 20 and 30 years later, Things began changing for other people just like they had changed for Mary back on the very first Easter morning to the point where 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus, there were thousands, tens of thousands of Christian believers living in Rome under Nero's rule. And today, in 2019, literally for billions of people through history and around the globe, everything has changed because Jesus is alive. See, Mary was the first to hear a risen Jesus call her name, but Mary became the first of many to hear Jesus call her by name. And that's why we're here today. Because I think for some people in this room, Jesus is calling you. I think Jesus is calling you to a different kind of life. I mean, you're stuck. Come on, you're stuck. You're hurting. 
You've been through this before. You've been down this road before. You need hope. There's some things that seem dead and they seem too far gone and you just need to believe that dead things can come back to life. He's calling you today. He wants to talk to your heart today. He wants to give you the promise of a new beginning and it's powerful and it's real and it's raw. Not because there's an official church position on it, but because real people like you, just like you, in circumstances just like yours, whose stories would parallel yours in in ways that would scare you, we have found that Jesus is still alive and he's still calling us today. And it's the reason that we're gathered here this morning. It's the reason that we come from homes that are being fixed and put back together. It's the reason that we have new ways of living within relationships and new ways of treating the broken and the outcasts. It's even the reason that we should love those that don't look like us or behave like us or think like us because that's what Jesus did for us. He loved the unlovable. He redeemed the unredeemable. He healed us that it just seemed like we were too far gone. And the only question left this morning is, you've got to answer, how are you going to respond when Jesus calls your name? And he might be calling you today, or maybe it's not calling. Maybe you don't hear anything today. Maybe you don't feel anything today. Maybe it'll be later in your life. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe after a life event that just leaves you in the darkness and leaves you wondering if there could ever be hope again. But at some point, Jesus will call you by name because he called me by name. And he called us by name in this room. Jesus is calling today. Can we all stand in the room? If you're here today and maybe you used to believe, maybe you kind of wish that you could believe again, maybe, maybe you believe, but you know the meaning of it just really hasn't connected. Maybe you're just not sure how Christianity and following Jesus kind of intersects with your life. I just want you today to just take a small step. I just want you to have a small moment with Jesus before we, you know, we leave this place. And I know we're surrounded by strangers and we don't know everybody here and maybe that's uncomfortable for some of us. That's all right. But if you're here today and you want to believe again, and again, you might not be sure what that looks like. Not, you might not be sure when that's going to happen. But if you're just, just willing today to make the invitation that Jesus, could you please just, just set things in motion in my life? Jesus, would, would you maybe let me hear you call my name today? I want us to do this all over the room. Could we all bow our heads and close our eyes? Nobody looking around. Each of us in our own private moment right now. If that's you today that you wish, you're hoping you can believe again, you're hoping that you can hear him call your name, would you just lift your hand in the air today all over this room? Come on. I see hands going up. God bless you, sir, ma'am. I see you. God bless you. Come on. Every head bow stilled. Every eye still closed. Jesus I see your hands. God bless you. God bless you. Jesus, call us today. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.